The thing pleased him ant and ant. He laughed on and he laughed on, he made such a noises. The grasshopper feared he would mix place his forces. I forgive you, grand aunt, said the grasshopper weeping, for their souks of the sakes you are safe in whose keeping. Teach flow and loose polkas, show beanie wears sweet, and be sure Vespertila finds fat ones to heat. As I once played the piper, I must now play the count, so seder to my hamlet, and mahabba to your mount. Let who likes lump above, so what flies be a fullen, I could not feel more gruggy if this was a prompullen. I pick up your reproof, the horse gift of a friend, for the prize of your save is the price of my spend. Can cast whores pull a deft kiss if old Pollux forsake him, or Cullux feel etchy if Pollux don't wake him? A locust to low, a term to embarrass, these twain are the twins that tick homo vulgaris. As Aquileon not winged to go scythe, since the griffin were in his forest drew brife, and that accident man not bezeeked where his story ends, since long sapphiring sighs sought hearts east for their orients. We are waste not with want, precondemned to and true, till Nolans go volants and Bruneyes come blue. Ere those gid flirts now gadding, you quit your mocks for my gropes, and extents must impull and elapse must elopes. Of my tectucks take stock, tink tact and all's wheel, as I view by your firelick, hail yourself to my heel. Party prize my thin winds, whilst my blink points unbroken on, your holes wear abroads with touts, try to write token on. My invisible universe you'd lehowed find, salt oxtra be fornis meet servile behind. Your feats and enormous, your volumes immense, may the graces I hoped for sing your ship song sense. Your genus it's worldwide, your space is sublime, but holy salt Martin, why can't you beat time? <laughs> Here we go again. I say that not only because this is my Finnegan's Wake podcast episode part two, but also because I tried to record this episode yesterday and completely cocked up the mic placement so it sounded like I was recording it into a potato. So this is me doing it again, (laughs) hopefully with more success this time. Finnegan's Wake, the most mental novel I've ever read. For anyone who doesn't know the plot of this novel and why the hell should you, Essentially, it revolves around a family in a small town on the outskirts of Dublin. It takes place, well, to the best of anyone's knowledge, at night, in a dream, or in dreams of various characters. There are five main characters in the novel. H.C.E., the father. A.L.P., the mother. Twin sons, Shem and Sean. And the daughter, Izzy. And the main plot revolves around a letter which details some kind of sexual crime committed by the father, H.C.E. It's implied that this was an incestuous act that he committed in the park with two young girls, one of whom, again, implied is his daughter. The letter is never actually seen, its contents are never exposed, but it's a main plot device. However, from reading the novel itself, you would never have any idea that any of this has happened because it's completely unreadable <laughs> and ununderstandable. Nonetheless, I gave it a go. It's taken me, well, initially I thought it had taken me around 10 or 11 months to finish it. I've been reading it kind of on and off, reading other things in between. But I realised actually I started it and read maybe the first 70 pages, something like that, about two years ago. 
So all in all, it's taken me roughly two years to complete. Was it worth it? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. <laughs> it's regarded as, if not the hardest, then at least one of the hardest works in the English literary canon. So there's some volume of bragging rights which comes with having completed it. At the same time, it was also really, really interesting read in that Joyce throughout the whole novel just completely plays with the English language and actually many other languages. In the last podcast I mentioned that he learned something like 17 different languages, presumably not fluently, to be able to create plays on word with them. And it's also very, very funny. Anthony Burgess referred to it as one of the few novels in the English language which can make us laugh on almost every page. And while I didn't laugh on every page, I did laugh or at least lightly chuckle to myself quite a lot while reading it. I'm basically just going to carry on where I left off last time. When I recorded the first episode on Finnegan's Wake, I was just under halfway through. I had just got to chapter two of part two of Finnegan's Wake. It's a novel split into four parts or four books, and there's varying numbers of chapters in each of those parts. And I'm just going to go through, I'll explain as best as I can the chapter contents while I go through. As I mentioned in the first episode, there's no complete consensus on the plot. The plot points which I've just laid out are the parts which are generally agreed upon, but there's lots of specifics which aren't by any means agreed upon. Academic studiers of the novel believe that they have made sense of the plot mostly, but lots of it's also just made up of seemingly unrelated vignettes and little stories and asides, so it's kind of difficult to find a plot in it. So I'm going to go through, pick out the bits which I found particularly fun or funny or interesting or beautiful. There's lots of beautiful passages in Finnegan's Wake, despite its inherent ununderstandability. The episode might seem therefore a little bit disjointed because I'm not going to be talking about any overarching themes. So if it is a little bit disjointed, then I apologise to any OCD listeners, but it's still recommended listening. Of course, it's my podcast, but also because there's lots of funny and beautiful bits which I'd like to read out. So particularly for all of my Danish listeners, as I recently found out, I'm quite popular in Denmark. I hope you enjoy it. So recently I watched a video of Anthony Burgess trying to explain Finnegan's Wake in this quite funny mock Irish pub setting. So he kind of comes in out of the rain <laughs> flicks a fag out of his mouth, explains Finnegan's Wake, goes for a piss and then leaves, <laughs> and drinks a pint, obviously, in the meantime. It was quite an odd setup, I thought. <laughs> but I kind of quite liked the weird, dreamy, contrived nature of it. Anyway, it was sent to me by my good friend Brad Davies of Propagandopolis fame. Anthony Burgess in the video explains how Finnegan's Wake is kind of a classic rise and fall story. But there's no conclusion after the fall. The man just rises again and then falls again eternally. And it was meant to be a, a meditation on the cyclical nature of time. And it's represented in the book also by the form of the book itself in that the final sentence loops back round and completes the very first sentence. So I don't know about any of that. <laughs> when I was reading it, particularly when I got to this part, part two, Chapter two. I was mostly just struck by how intimidating it is. <laughs> it's meant to be a representation of a school book. So the three children are upstairs above the pub, which the main character owns, and they're learning. And one of the boys is trying to read the school book, and his brother is trying to teach him simultaneously. 
So that's represented by notes in the margins. And at the same time, his sister, Izzy, is also suggesting things which could help him. And that's represented by footnotes. And at the same time, there's more marginalia, which is in the form of titles, which represents the different chapters of the schoolbook. The conclusion of the chapter is that one of the brothers gets the other brother to draw this kind of Venn diagram, which turns out to be a picture of the genitals of their mother. And he then hits him because he didn't realize that's what he was trying to draw. It's all very weird. I mostly just went through it and highlighted the bits which I found really, really funny. One of the things that struck me a lot as I was reading Finnegan's Wake is how much German you can pick up from it. On some, on one of the pages just in this chapter, there were so many ger- little German words which maybe wouldn't, maybe wouldn't stick out to you if you didn't know the language. There are also bits which are written completely in German and also in French. But if the bits which are written in German are anything to go by, then the French doesn't make any sense at all, because the German certainly doesn't. The German bar is zwei Spaltung als fundamentalisch of Wiederherstellung, which doesn't mean anything. But it seems to me that the section kind of goes through different languages as it goes on. So there's a bit which is completely in Latin. There's a bit which is completely in German. There's a bit which is completely in French. All of it nonsense, of course. And on top of the kind of language games which Joyce plays. Some of the marginalia really, really reads sort of like academic articles written from a postmodern perspective, <laughs> which I found really, really funny. One of them was the haves and the have-nots, a distinction. And then there was another one, which is early notions of acquired rights and the influence of collective tradition upon the individual, which sounds like something I could have read for my degree, which I really, really liked. They made me laugh because it's just so silly. And it's just this one it seems to me one big piss take of kind of academic writing. And as I mentioned in the last episode, I do genuinely think that basically the whole novel is just one big piss take. One extremely complicated 17-year-long piss take. And I really, really appreciate it. And another thing which really interested me while reading the novel in general, but particularly in this part, is how it uses this language, not all of it, lots of it is just completely indecipherable, but some of it is so close to how English should be. It it very almost makes sense, but just doesn't quite. And it really is dreamlike in that way, in that when you're in a dream, it's close to reality and stuff is almost so close to making sense, but it just doesn't quite. And there are almost people that you know in your dream, but they're not quite the people that you know. They're almost based on them, but there's, there's always something wrong with them or they always morph into somebody else before you quite get a grasp on exactly, exactly who they were meant to be. And one of the things that I found really nice in Finnegan's Wake is that you kind of, even if you don't understand it, which you won't, fair warning, you make your own references and associations while reading it. So there's one part here which is when the answerer is layman. That's one of the notes in the margins. And I just thought immediately of quite a famous German novel called Herr Lehmann, which is interestingly also a stream of consciousness novel, which most of Joyce's work is, at least his three main novels were. There's, I mean, th- there's obviously no relation, but there was something quite funnily coincidental about the fact that that word comes up, Lehmann, and it's the name of a novel called Herr Lehmann, and how Finnegan's Wake made that association for me, and that association actually meant something because of the style in which both novels were written. Stuff like that was quite interesting, and there's a lot of that while going through. But more importantly than that, I realised reading Finnegan's Wake that there's just something inherently funny 
about long lists. So I'm just going to read one of my favourite lists from Finnegan's Wake. (laughs) Finnegan's Wake. A list. Art, literature, politics, economy, chemistry, humanity, etc. Duty. The daughter of discipline. The great fire at the South City markets. Belief in giants and the banshee. A place for everything and everything in its place. Is the pen mightier than the sword? A successful career in the civil service. The voice of nature in the forest. Your favourite hero or heroine. On the benefits of recreation. If standing stones could speak. Devotion to the feast of the indulgence of Portanucla. The Dublin Metropolitan... <laughs> the Dublin Metropolitan Police Sports of Borsbridge. Describe in homely Anglian monosyllables the wreck of Hesperus. What morals, if any, can be drawn from Diamoid and Grania? Do you approve of our existing parliamentary system? The uses and abuses of insects. A visit to Guinness's brewery. Club's advantages of the penny post. When is a pun not a pun? Is the co-education of animus and anima wholly desirable? What happened at Clontarf? Since our brother Jonathan signed the pledge or the meditations of two young spinsters. Why we all love our little Lord Mayor. Engler's Circus Entertainment. On thrift. The Kettle Griffiths Monian scheme for a new electricity supply. Travelling in the olden times. American Lake Poetry. The strangest dream that was ever half dreamt. Circumspection. Our allies in the hills. Our Parnalites just towards Henry Tudor. Tell a friend in a chatty letter the fable of the grasshopper and the ant. Santa Claus. The shame of London. The Roman pontiffs and the Orthodox churches. <laughs> the 30-hour week. Compare the fistic styles of Jimmy Wilde and Jack Sharkey. How to understand the deaf. Should ladies learn music or mathematics? Glory be to St. Patrick. What is found in a dust heap? The value of circumstantial evidence. Should spelling. <laughs> and it goes on and on and on. But I really, really liked that. It also brings the second chapter of the second part to a conclusion. The scene shifts, so we're no longer following the children upstairs, but we go back down to the father, HCE, who's in the pub below. And simultaneously, we follow two narratives, one of which is on the television and one of which is on the radio. The first is the Norwegian captain and the tailor's daughter, and the second is how Buckley shot the Russian general. This part is regarded as potentially the most complex chapter in the novel, which is quite interesting, because the first part about the Norwegian captain, I actually found almost sort of semi-understandable. The second half, talking about how Buckley shot the Russian general, is completely ununderstandable. But the first part, it's written in how you kind of would imagine sailors speak, almost. On top of that, there's lots of Germanic, or at least Germanic-sounding words, or plays on Germanic words, and Norwegian words, and German words. And that I found really, really fun. There were some passages of, of real lyrical beauty, I thought, such as this part. Ill luck to it, blasphemes the now raging scamp tail, inflating furies outstrews his camel skins, the flashlight of his eye whackering from the eye winker on his mast stop. An eye far he fared from Afferink Arena, and yea near he night till brawling bearing. Bacon be the brazen sun, buttered be the snows, and the sea shoaled and the saw squalled, and soaking scupper didn't he drain. A pause. Not a scooby what it means. But I really, really liked it. I remember reading it and thinking, oh, I'll turn the page there, that's quite pretty. And another really, really lovely part which I liked was, The street spins legends while wharves woves tales, but some family feud felt a nick in their name. Old vicars sate down on the airs and straightened the points of their lace. Red Rowleys popped out of their lairs and asked what was wrong with the race. McNamara used dripping in layers to shave all the furs off his face. The Berkeleys and Corfins paid full fines for their sins when the Kappa Miss Cooley were roped. Which I found also just really, really nice. Lyrical. Again, no idea what it means. 
so don't ask me. I mean, the, uh, apparently, according to Joyce, they do have meaning. I don't believe him. I think he was just playing a joke. But there's something really interesting in reading these passages, which, you know, have at least no meaning to me, and still being able to find them lyrical and melodious. But those two excerpts were both from the Norwegian captain story. And the second half of the chapter, as I mentioned, gets really, really difficult. I've actually written, oh God, in the margins. <laughs> As this part starts, it's written in the style of a screenplay, or more likely a theatre piece. And there's there's two characters talking back and forth to one another before each of their lines are at least five or six lines of stage directions. And then they have double or triple that in text. And it was very difficult to get through. I found it really, really hard to read. I mean as if I'd found other bits of the novel easy to read. Obviously, I hadn't. And there were, just, there were just so many words which were just unpronounceable. I wrote in the margin, I can't even give an example of this bit because they're just, <laughs> because they're just so difficult to say. The abnihilization of the Etim by the grisning of the grosning of the grinder of the grander of the first lord of Hutreford expolodotinates through Parseralia with even more in Thorumble Fragorum Boasti, amid which his general uttermost confession, a perceivable molotan scaping with molecules, while Coventry plumpkins fairly gosmother themselves, and the Landown elegance of Pinkadind. I mean, you, you get the idea. It's not all written like this. Some of it is all sort of semi-understandable. Some of it's not understandable, but the words at least look, as I mentioned, very close to English words. So close they're, you know, this close. I'm holding my thumb and finger, not very far apart, to being recognisable. Here, they're just completely irrecognisable, almost impossible to say. And frankly, I, I just I just don't really get it. But at some point, this section does come to an end, and we come back to funny bits, like this line. We always, for that time only, what we knew how when we, from that point solely, were you nowhere. <laughs> which for some reason just made me laugh, don't know why, made me chuckle. And some bits which are just pleasing. The Hague for a halt on a pouncefoot pansy. Pink, please, pink. Do please, pink. How please, pink. Liked it. Underlined it. Wanted to read it. Also, on page 367 of the edition I've got, which is the Penguin Books edition with an introduction by Seamus Dean, I found my band name. Maskers of the Waterworld. Coming to Brisbane soon. So, that's part two, chapter three. Part four also was very, very difficult. It begins, however, with a really lovely poem, and then half a page later, there's some really, really beautiful passages. So the poem is, Three quarks for Muster Mark, sure he hasn't got much of a bark, and sure any he has, it's all beside the mark. But old Renegal Almighty wouldn't unbe a sky of a lark to see that old buzzard whooping about foot and shirt in the dark. And he hunting round for unspeckled trousers around by Palmerstone Park. Ho, 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 Malty Mark. You're the rummest old rooster ever flopped out of a Noah's Ark and you think you're cock of the wark. Fouls up. Tristy's the spry young spark that will tread her and wed her and bed her and red her without ever winking the tail of a feather. And that's how that chap's going to make his money and mark. Not really sure what that means. Palmerstone Park, I believe, is where the sexually deviant act, the incestuous act, takes place. Three quarks for Muster Mark. That word quark was taken from Finnegan's Wake and now refers to the subatomic particle, which is kind of cool. Then I've written here in the margin, as I think I did quite a lot of times, almost understandable, <laughs> but a really lovely passage at the beginning. Overhoved, shrill glee screaming, that song sang sea swans, the winged ones, seahawks, seagull, curlew and plover, kestrel and capacalzi, 
All the birds of the sea they trolled out right bold when they smacked the big cast of trust and with you sold. And there they were too when it was dark, while as the wild caps were circling, as slow their ship, the winds are slight. Upborne the fates, the ward rose moved, by courtesy of Mr. Jubilee down below Camposalli, listening in, as hard as they could, in Duppeldorp. The Donker, by the turny old of the waterfalls, with their vuxums and their kemin in so hatterjockey, only a quarter buck a skull for the last acts, to the solons and the sycamores and the wild geese and the gannets, and the migratories and the missile thrushes and the auspices, and all the birds of the rock by sucker Susiocinal sea, all four of them, all sighing and sobbing and listening. Quite nice, I thought. I unlined it at least, so I liked it at least at that time. The final part of section two, which I've just read from, chapter four of section two. According to Wikipedia, HCE, the father who is in the pub, has fallen asleep in the pub after the punters have been kicked out. And this chapter portrays his dream within the dream that he's in. So the whole novel is a dream, as I mentioned, and he's now fallen asleep in this dream and is dreaming again. There's a dream within a dream, like Inception shit. Four of the... Apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are watching the journey of Tristan and Isyalt, which is an old romantic tale from the 1100s to do with adulterous love between this knight and this princess. It influenced some of the Arthurian tales, such as the tale of Lancelot and Guinevere, and it's quite famous. I actually hadn't heard of it until I looked up this part. But anyway, chapter four essentially just represents the four apostles spying on this story as it's taking place. And then they kind of offer commentaries on the story. Apparently they're always repeating themselves, these four men offering these commentaries on this chivalric romance, which I think is again meant to be kind of a representation of this cyclical nature of time, which Joyce was supposedly representing in Finnegan's Wake. But do not quote me on that. That brings us to the end of part two. So there's only two parts left. <laughs> Thank God. And again, as I kept writing, going through, forgetting I'd written it before, the beginning of this chapter, at least, I wrote the one part you can almost read normally, which isn't true. I've, I've lied to myself there. It's a lie. I've completely lied through my teeth. But it is slightly more understandable than the last chapter four of part two, which I found really difficult, and particularly the second half of three which was really, really difficult. It then it gets really hard as well, this part. Not only because the language itself is so difficult, though that's obviously the main reason, also because it's so dense. You kind of, you don't lose interest, but you just lose the ability to concentrate enough to try and figure out what's going on. I think to try and figure out what's going on, you'd have to really closely read sort of 10 pages at a time, maybe, or maybe even fewer, and just write down what you think's, go what you think's going on, and then come back to it like an hour later after you've had a bit of a break and, I don't know, read some Harlequins or something. <laughs> no, don't read Harlequins. But the poem I read to open this podcast is contained within this chapter, which I really, really loved, mostly just because it reminded me of Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky, which is in Alice in Wonderland, of course, and goes like this. "'Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe, all mimsy were the borogoves and the momraths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jub-jub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the manxome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock, with eyes of flame, 
came whiffling through the tolgy wood and bubbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O frabjous day, kaloo kalay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig, and the slithy toes did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the moam rouse out grabe. It doesn't mean anything. It's Alice in Wonderland. Of course it doesn't mean anything. But you understand that there's some kind of brave knight figure with a sword, and there's a scary beast, and somebody tells him to watch out for the scary beast. He doesn't. He goes and has a think. It comes to get him. He beheads it. And then the person rejoices who told him to watch out because the scary, dangerous Jabberwocky's dead. Finnegan's Wake isn't quite so understandable as that. However, the poem, which I read at the beginning, really, really reminded me of this. And part of this section essentially details one of the sons, Sean, who's a postman, with the letter which details HCE's crimes. And he gets stopped trying to deliver it, and he's posed these questions about the content of the letter and why the letter is important. And he doesn't want to get caught, basically. He doesn't want to give a straight answer, and so he doesn't. And one of his answers is telling the story of the Gracehopper and the Aunt, and that's what that poem does, which I read out at the beginning. The reason I always liked Jabberwocky, the reason why everyone likes Jabberwocky, is because it's a nonsense poem and it makes no sense, and it just makes you laugh because the words are silly, and yet you can still kind of follow what's going on and that's what's fun about this one. Oh, and apparently the poem is meant to be a framing of the sean shem relationship because according to the anthony burgess video which i mentioned earlier sean and shem each represent a partial of their parents sean the postman is more like his father and shem the penman who's meant to be a writer and is at least partially representative of Joyce himself, takes his creativity from his mother, who's represented in the novel as a river, and her flowing nature is her creativity, which she handed down to Shem the Penman. And supposedly, Sean and Shem represent, at least to some extent, Joyce and his own brother. And they are always kind of fighting, and according to Burgess, it was kind of like Joyce's pacifist statement where if we want to strive for a higher level of truth and beauty, then we should stop our silly quabbles. <laughs> I don't think even Burgess really understands it himself. Sean, though, the postman, is presented in chapter two of part three as this divine biblical figure who is kind of loved by all the women and essentially... <laughs> I don't know if this was just like a, a joking stab at his brother, or maybe even a serious stab at his brother. Knowing Joyce, it would be a joking stab. He is just presented as this extremely arrogant, boastful, kind of unbearable dude who thinks that all the women are swooning over him and that he's God's gift to man and woman, which he kind of evidently isn't, but he does play an important role in that he's meant to be delivering the letter. Regardless, there were some funny parts of this, such as these four pieces of advice from Sean. Never park your brief stays in the men's convenience. Never clean your button cups with your dirty pair of sassers. Never ask his first person where's your quickest cut to our last place. Never let the promising hand you make free of your once made sacral. Never dip in the urn while you've browsers on your suite. Never slip the silver key through your gate of golden age. Never christen medlard apples till a swithin is in sight. Wear your whistle where a weed is and you'll roar it in despinidis. All important advice, I'm sure you'll agree. <laughs> 
It's also a very long chapter, this one. It took me a bloody age to get through. One of the main things which I highlighted from it was actually on the last page of the chapter. And it goes like this. But boy, you did your strong nine furlong mile in slick and slapstick record time, and a far-fetched deed it was in troth, champion docile, with your high-bouncing gait of going and your feet of passage, will be contested with you and through you for centuries to come. The phoenix rose a sun before Arabia sank his smother, shoot up on that bright Bennu bird, vefatois, eftsoon so too will our own phoenix spark spurt his spire and sunward stride the rampant flambe. Ay, already the sombre opacities of the gloom are vanished. Brave foot horn, work your progress, hold to now, win out ye devil ye. The silent cock shall crow at last, the west shall shake, the east awake. Walk while ye have the night for morn, light breakfast bringer. Moroweth whereon every pass shall full foss sleep. Amen. As I say every time, I haven't got a clue what it means, but I really liked it. So this is part three. H.C.E. the father talks through his son, Sean, who has regressed to the point of being an overgrown baby lying on his back, apparently. And he essentially is trying to defend himself from the charges which have happened against him. He and his wife are now represented not as HCE and ALP, but as Mr. and Mrs. Porter, with their three children, Jerry, Kevin and Isabel, who obviously refer to Shem, Sean and Izzy. And they're basically attempting to have sex while the Dawn is rising. And the dawn is rising because we're coming to the end of the novel. There's not huge amounts left. And the dawn rises as man rises, as the father rises from his slumber. And eventually the day will begin. But we won't experience that because the cycle will simply repeat. There were some funny bits which I wanted to read out, such as the fact that a penis is referred to as a propendiculous load poker. <laughs> which I think is probably the best in nymph penis I've ever heard. There's also a really funny question and answer here, which I really, really enjoyed. Somebody goes on a huge monologue, and then somebody else asks, which was said by Huem to whom? It Huem. But Huem I can't remember. <laughs> and just some other little silly bits which made me chuckle because they were so dumb. Somebody asks, you saw it visibly from your hiding place? And it's replied, no, from my invisibly lying place. <laughs> which, I don't know, when I first read it, really, really made me laugh. Maybe it's just because the the reading of Finnegan's Wake is making me go crazy. Oh, and one interesting thing which came to mind as I was reading, there's a part here where one of the characters says, did you think I was asleep at the wheel? Finnegan's Wake was written in 17 years, from 1922 to 1939. And particularly at the beginning of that time period, cars wouldn't have been the most common things to see on the streets. I don't think cars really became extremely common until uh, more towards the middle of the century. And I looked up this phrase because I was surprised that it already existed. And apparently it developed from the phrase, asleep at the switches. And it's actually a reference to train drivers who would be not obviously not asleep at the wheel, they'd be asleep at the switches. And then it developed into a car expression. So if you only learn one thing from this podcast, that's bloody it. And along with my favourite synonym for penis is one of my favourite insults ever. My, fr my friend Sean once said that the Italians like to tell people that they will piss in their mother's milk. <laughs> because, I don't know, I guess in the past milk was like a really, really important food stuff for the Italians and pissing is it and pissing in it was seen as like the biggest sign of disrespect. Mine, however, is relatively simple but nicely expressed. It's on page five two five of my version, and it's just short lives to your relatives. <laughs> 
So that insult brings us to the end of chapter four of part three. The final part has the porters finally managing to finish their sex, but only after one of the children, Jerry, who I believe is Shem, the penman, Joyce himself, wakes up and Mrs. Porter has to go and comfort him. And there's a beautiful long list right at the beginning of this, which I really, really loved. Finnegan's Wake, a list. Each and every juridical sessions night, when as good men 12 and true at fox and geese in their numbered habitations, tried old wireless overboard at their juror members, whereas by reverendum they found him guilty of their and those imputations, of fornicopulation with two of his albocural correlations on whom he was said to have enjoyed by anticipation, when schooling them in a moan, mid-grass she sat, when man was, amazingly frank, for their first conjugation, whose colours at standing up from the above were of a pretty carnation, but, if really twere not so, of some deretained inundation, with intent to excitation, caused by his retrogradation, among firearmed forces proper to this nation, but apart from all titillation which, he said, was under heat pressure and a good mitigation, without which in any case he insists upon being worthy of continued alimentation, for him having displayed, he says, such grand toleration, reprobate so noted and all as he was, with his wash leather, with his wash leather swedes and his smoking stump, for denying transubstantiation, nevertheless in respect of his high-powered station, whereof, more especially as probably, he was meantime suffering genteel tortures from the best medical attestation, as he oftentimes did, having only strength enough by way of festination, to implore, or I believe you might have said better, to complore, with complete obsecration, Still he was likewise. <laughs> it just goes on like that. Which brings us, by a commodious vicus of recirculation, to the final part of Finnegan's Wake. And also the final chapter, because part four is only made up of one chapter. A relatively short chapter, just 35 pages. Short for Finnegan's Wake, at least. It's made up essentially of seemingly unrelated little stories and scenes. And it closes on a monologue from the mother, ALP which is interesting because it reflects the ending of Ulysses, which also closes on Molly, the main character, Leopold Bloom's wife. It's the only time you hear about ALP in her own words, the same as the only time you hear about Molly through her own words is right at the end of Ulysses. And it also very much brings the cyclical nature of Finnegan's Wake into focus, because the final sentence of Finnegan's Wake is a sentence fragment which reads, Away, alone, a last, a loved, along thee. And it finishes with the first sentence of the novel. River run, past even Adams, from swerve of shore to bend of bay, brings us by a commodious vicus of recirculation back to Health Castle and environs. And this is also meant to show the cyclical, repetitive nature of time, and it's done so in the novel itself. And this cyclical nature is also meant to represent the rise and fall of man, the rise and fall of humankind, the rise and fall of civilizations, and it's represented here through falling into sleep and rising from slumber. I didn't mark huge amounts of this. Two parts particularly caught my eye, one part for its beauty, which goes like this. One sea kings. Not the lithe slender, not the broad roundish near the lithe slender, not the fair-sized full-featured to the layward of the broad roundish, but, indeed and ineed, the curling, perfect portioned, flower-fleckled, shapely high-hued, delicate features swaying to the windward of the fair-sized full-featured, which I really, really liked. And then <laughs> a funny bit, which is quite difficult to read, and maybe that kind of funny wordplay confusion is what made me chuckle. Was that in the air about when something is to be said for it, or is it someone in particular who will summarise for the whole anyhow? 
Don't know why that made me laugh, but it did. And I suppose that's kind of it. I can't really say that I can recommend Finnegan's Wake. It's too difficult, it's too dense, it's too much of a chore to get through. And it is a chore. It's highly unreadable, extremely ununderstandable. The semblance of plot, which academics have spent years creating a consensus on, is almost nowhere to be found in the novel. You can't even really pick out the characters. Shem, Sean, HCE, ALP, and Izzy are all referred to by loads and loads of different names throughout the novel, so you can't even be sure who you're reading about. And on top of that, there are just so many asides. It's It's got so many digressions and little vignettes which seem completely unrelated and these little stories and an unimaginable amount of references to literature and even probably pop culture of the time, just like Ulysses was, but at least Ulysses was 70% understandable. Finnegan's Wake is barely 5% understandable, in my opinion. So I don't think I can really recommend it. If you really fancy a challenge, and if you want to just kind of maybe not read a novel, but just sort of look over these fun collections of half-words, which often contain lots of beauty and are lyrical and are a joy to read, and is often very, very funny and will make you smile, will make you chuckle. It had me laughing out loud all the time, actually. Then go for it. But it will take up a hell of a lot of your time and you, you'll definitely have to do a lot of reading around it to be able to get anything out of it, I think. I think if I hadn't looked up the plot, inverted commas, and if I hadn't looked up some of the thematic overviews and stuff like that, of which I, I've, I've looked up quite a lot of them, I don't think I would have got anywhere near as much out of it. I suppose to conclude, I'd just like to end on probably my favourite passage in the whole novel. It was like a microcosm of everything that I liked about Finnegan's Wake. Inherent funny long lists. Lots of fun wordplay. One of the more understandable passages and yet still essentially ununderstandable and just general silly humour. Finnegan's Wake. A list. This missy my tortoise and these man my son from my fife of the villa on the Osmanorum of Thorstons, recte Thomas Srade, and from Huggin Pleats to William Inglis his house, that man de Londres, and all their barony of Saltus, bonders and faux-burgers, helots and zealots, strutting ogues and swaggering macs, the Darcy Jeemses, the Drury Joneses, redmaids and bluecots, in homage all and felony, all who have received tickets, fair home overcrowded, tidy but very little furniture, respectable. Whole family attends daily mass and is dead sick of bread and butter, sometimes in the militia, mentally strained from reading work on German physics, shares closet with eight other dwellings, more than respectable. Getting comfortable parish relief, wage earner freshly shaven from prison, highly respectable. Planning new departure in Montgomery cycle finishing. Eldest son will not serve but peruses big man up in the sky scraps. Anu Pandun lacking backway, was I respectable. Pays ragman in bones for faded window curtains, staircase continually lit up with guests, Particularly respectable. House lost in dirt and blocked with refuse, getting on like Rose Distillery on fire. Slovenly wife active with the jug, in business for himself, has a tenth illegitimate coming. Partly respectable. Following correspondence courses, chucked work over row, both cheeks kissed at levee by late Marquess of Zetland. Sharing closet which was profusely written over with eleven other subscribers. Once respectable. Open hallway pungent of Baltic dishes, bangs kept woman's head against wall thereby disturbing neighbours. Private chapel occupies return landing, removal every other quarter day, case one of peculiar hopelessness. Most respectable. 
Night soil has to be removed through snoring household. Eccentric naval officer not quite steady enjoys weekly church warden and laugh while reading foreign pictorials on clump stump. Four door, known as the trap. Widow rheumatic and chars, haunted, condemned and execrated, of dubious respectability. Tools too costly pledged or uninsured. Reform philanthropist, whenever feasible, takes advantage of unfortunates against dilapidating ash pits. Serious student is eating his last dinners. Floor dangerous for unaccompanied old clergymen. Thoroughly respectable. Many uncut pious books in evidence, nearest water tap 200 yards away. Foul and bottled gooseberry frequently on table. Man has not had boots off for 12 months. Infant being taught to hammer flat piano. Outwardly respectable. Sometimes hears from tiled connection, one foot of dust between banister and cracked wall. Wife cleans stools. Eminently respectable. Otto Wark and regular loafer should be operated would she consent. Deplorable rent in roof. Claret cellar cobwebs since the pontificate of Leo. Wears drill trousers and collects raw buddhas. Underages very treacly and verminous have to be separated. Sits up with fever cases for one and threepence. Owns two terraces, back-to-back breeze, respectable in every way. Harmless imbecile supposedly weak-minded. A sausage every Sunday. Has a staff of eight servants. Outlook marred by ne'er-do-wells used in the laneway. Liarbed sons go out with sisters immediately after dark. Has never seen the sea. Travels always with her eleven trunks of clothing. Starving cat left in disgust. The pink of respectability. Resting after colonial service. Labours at plant. The despair of his many benefactresses. Calories exclusively from round trees and dumplings. One bar of sunlight does them all in January and half February. The VDV's animal diet. Live in five-storied semi-detached but rarely paid tradesmen. When security for friend who absconded. Shares same closet with 14 similar cottages and an ill-famed lodging house. More respectable than some. Tea widow pension but held to purchase. Inherited silk hat from father-in-law. Head of domestic economy never mentioned. Query how they live. Reputed to procure. Last four occupants carried out. Mental companionship with mates only. Respectability unsuccessfully aimed at. Copious holes emitting mice. Decoration from Uganda chief in locked ivory casket. Grandmother has advanced alcoholic amblyopia. The terror of Goodman's field. And respected and respectable. As respectable as respectable can respectably be. If you liked the podcast, it's really, really useful if you leave a rating as well as a comment and if you like and subscribe. And for more bibliographer content, you can head over to my Instagram at the bibliographer or my Twitter at bibliographer underscore. And until next time. <laughs>